Hello, welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who's toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I talk to the people who make travelling and eating such a delicious adventure. Hey there, thanks for joining me for this episode of Extra Virgin. Are you a diver or a snorkeler? I'm definitely not a diver, but I love snorkeling and I've been lucky enough to have snorkeled reefs in the Red Sea, Australia's Great Barrier Reef and in Mexico. And it always fills me with such awe. There's been a lot of talk lately about how climate change is putting our reef systems under intense stress and the danger that they could even die off. So today I'm going to be chatting all things reef to find out the real state of the world's biggest, the Great Barrier Reef, and also what we as tourists can do to help keep reef systems alive and healthy worldwide. Because of course there are communities who really depend on the tourism that these reefs bring. We're also going to hear some good news from my guest, Dr. David Suggett, who is a marine biologist and a professor in the climate change cluster at the University of Technology in Sydney. We're going to hear about the Coral Nurture Program, which is replanting parts of the Great Barrier Reef with coral, which is such an extraordinary concept, but so far the results are looking good. Welcome, David. Thanks for joining us. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you. David, I'm looking forward to hearing about the work you're doing with reef rehabilitation, but I'm also interested in how you became a marine biologist, because although you come from an island, it's not an island that I, anyway, associate with reefs. Well, I have to admit I've had uh, a very interesting journey and I guess I've always had a bit of a philosophy in life of having a, a fairly broad goal and really ensuring that the that you know your life is about the journey getting there rather than the destination and i grew up on an island in the uk in the south of the uk and uh, spent most of my misspent childhood snorkeling on the temperate reefs around the island um, with friends drifted really in in and out of opportunities to be honest beyond that i always knew i wanted to be a marine biologist but i didn't actually know what that was or what that meant so I had a very a convoluted journey through life as an oceanographer, doing a PhD and a, and a master's degree in that space and sailing up and down the Atlantic, looking at how small microbes in the ocean influence the, the health of the ocean. I then managed a nature reserve in Costa Rica. I spent time managing conservation projects in Greece before starting to settle into the UK with a more of a focus on organisms ranging from corals to a range of different organisms corals and their associated microbes really so that really started taking me to reefs and reef destinations and i it you know it soon became very clear to me that many of the questions that we were asking about reefs were perhaps a little bit um narrow because they didn't always involve the people that it mattered most to on the reef and when you actually start talking with reef stakeholders and now of course tourism and tourists is really where we're going with this you quite often find that the sort of research that you're interested in and and do doesn't change but actually how you frame it does because Mm. of the Mm. the very questions that are needed on the ground Mm. Uh, what island did you come from in the uk It's the Isle of Wight. It's uh, it's actually an island where many people go to retire. So I think that's why I probably spent most of <laughs> you really. 
So I, that's probably why I spent most of my time at the beach with my friends. But yeah, so uh, yeah, it's very sort of maritime lifestyle growing up, a lot of time in, in and on the water. So uh, it was a natural direction for me. But as I said, I was I was interested in in life beneath the ocean more than, than on it originally. Interesting. David, if I think about reefs, all that comes to mind is really colourful coral, but they're much more complex than that, aren't they? Well, that's right. If we think what a coral is, it's a, a really unique organism in you know, in inventory where it actually generates its own ecosystem. So the, it has an interact relationship, if you like, between what we call the host, which is basically a glorified jellyfish and algal symbionts. And they work together to, to self-generate symbiotically all of the resources they need to grow in otherwise really nutrient-starved blue ocean waters. And the byproduct of this at the same time is that they start to calcify and generate substrates. So they really engineer the environment. And in doing so, it creates all of the space for all of the other animals to inhabit, but mm-hmm. also feed upon. Mm-hmm. So what you end up with is this really, really complex space that creates biodiversity, that amplifies biodiversity. Because, of course, if you make space and food for the smaller organisms, the bigger organisms then evolve to take advantage of that. So, yeah, when we think about reefs, we quite often think about the corals mm. or, or, or the sort of the fish. But, of course, it's much more than that and um, extremely biodiverse. Mm. And reef systems really are the canary in the coal mine when it comes to environmental issues, aren't they? Well, absolutely. And I, I touched on the, the symbiotic relationship between the, the coral animal, this sort of glorified jellyfish and the algae. And that's, as I said, what we call the engine of the reef. It's the productivity between these two organisms that drives all of the productivity and biodiversity. But what's really important to remember, they're also the Achilles heel. So when reefs are growing, they're actually growing in, in under normal conditions right close to the edge of their limits. So they typically grow towards the sort of the thresholds with which water's warm, with which they acidify, all of this stuff. So whenever there's a perturbation in those environments, the relationship between the, the little algae and the coral starts to destabilize and the whole system starts to stress. And of course, once you take away your food supply for the reef or your, if you like, your habitat, you can only imagine what happens to the rest of the ecosystem. So they really are the first signs that our systems are in trouble. And many, I guess many people have heard of some of the mass bleaching mm. events we've experienced over the past 20 to 30 years. They've been increasing frequency and intensity under climate change. And it's that bleaching response that it is our canary in the coal mine. It, it really is the warning shot that we have really pushed our ecosystem beyond the limits it's designed to tolerate. Mm. Well, let's get the bad news over with first. You've mentioned <laughs> coral bleaching. What are some of the other effects that climate change has on the world's risk? Well, climate change has many forms. I think that's the thing to remember. And we, when we think about you know, what is climate change? We're pumping lots lots of carbon dioxide and other gases into the atmosphere that are warming the atmosphere, and then that's warming the oceans. In turn, those gases are also acidifying our waters, and, and actually the substrate that corals make is chalk, and you can imagine chalk and acid are not a good combination. Yeah. And then at the same time, the warming of the oceans itself actually takes a lot of the oxygen away. So we have this kind of triple threat of warming, acidification, and deoxygenation. And all of that is happening, what we call a chronic stress. It's happening slowly over time. So it's very hard to actually see the observations play out in real time. The other arm of climate change, though, are the effects we can actually see. 
Mm. And it's these more recent phenomena such as climate and weather extremes of heat waves. Um, we're all experiencing extremely wet weather at the mm. moment and very unusual flood. We have more and more intense and frequent storms. And of course, we have sea level rise. And all of these factors are really reflecting a much uh, less stable climate through climate change. And it's these acute periods that are really a problem for reefs currently because as an example we said bleaching we just looked back to 2016 2017 on the great barrier reef and we lost about 30 percent of the coral in those two years and so that's a, a huge amount of, of, of loss and it's of course struggling already against this sort of longer term chronic stress and ble bleaching itself is the when we have this sort of whitening of the of the, the coral is it the relationship between this little algae and the and the animal destabilizes. But what you notice, and I was really unfortunate, and I think many of us that have witnessed it in nature, it's, um, it's extremely depressing because you see reefs grow and thrive for, for years, and then literally overnight, the system will go from being vibrant and colorful to um, just collapsing into this sort of white underwater graveyard. Mm. And if you've, if you've ever witnessed that, it's sort of quite hard to comprehend what it means. And initially, a lot of the fish still interact with all of the remaining substrate because all the complexity is there. Oh. But actually, over the next few months to years, all of that dead coral material starts to erode. You lose the complexity. You've kind of lost your a lot of your food for other organisms. So the system just starts to become uh, a very barren landscape very quickly. And when we think about globally, we have about 1 billion people now that depend on, on reefs being healthy and viable. That, that really starts to... Uh, have a huge impact on, on, of course, the immediate society that need it for food or other resources. Mm. David, how long does it take generally? I mean, it's probably a stupid question, but how long does it take for a coral reef to form? And how long does it take for it to die when it, you know, experiences one of these, these you know, heated water or acidified water? Or... Well, that's a really, that's a great question. And I, I think we can, we can only sort of speak from the the present day you know reefs have been around for millions of years growing over time and if we think about a sort of an event and we, a good example is a cyclone that will wipe a huge amount of coral the landscape very quickly it can take anywhere from five to ten years to start to, to repopulate and grow and probably even longer to actually return to the same sort of state it once was in so you can imagine that if we're having these repeat stress events more frequently than mm. say five years the system just has no chance to rebuild. So the example in terms of how quickly can you lose a reef or degrade a reef, I mean, it, again, it can happen in the, the blink of an eye with a cyclone mm. or perhaps through sort of longer term stress degradation through coastal urbanization, pollution. It could happen over a much longer term over years. So it, it's really a sliding scale. And of course, we're having to manage these many factors in terms of loss and recovery that, that occur over anything from, from years to decades. Mm. Of course, the Barrier Reef is the world's largest reef system and there's been a lot of talk lately that the reef is dead. How true is this? Yeah, that's a, that's a really critical point because it is a question I hear commonly. And I think we have to sort of point the finger a little bit in, in how the, the media has portrayed the status of the reef. And in a sense, you know, the debate among scientists doesn't always help this, to be totally fair. But... The, when we hear comments like the reef is dead, it certainly isn't, and it's very much alive. I think what we probably would say is that, you know, by declaring that we've had to 
step up our management approaches we've probably put it on on a measure of life support where we really are having to take drastic measures to make sure the coral we have that, that's remaining really does have a, a solid future and i think some of these ideas where you hear headlines such as the reef is dead comes from the idea that we when we report statistics about the health of the reef and actually what i said earlier is a really good reflection on that where we have reports that 30% of the reef died um, in 2016, 2017. You know, it, it's not that whole areas die off. And what actually happens is that any one reef may lose, say, 30% of its viable areas. And part of the reason for that, again, is that reefs are really architecturally complex, environmentally complex. So, of course, some areas heat or acidify much more than others. So, of course, some areas are impacted more than others. So. So actually, when you hear that, you know, 30% of the reef has has died, it's, it really reflects that all reefs have got some loss, but they've also got some very, very beautiful and well-established areas still remaining. That's important for lots of reasons. And certainly in terms of searching for methods to help us try and repair and fast track the recovery of these impacted areas, uh, it means we've got lots of good areas close by to work with. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any, any examples of regions anywhere in the world where reef has died off completely? That's, I'm trying to cast my mind. I mean, I, I can't think of a good example in that case. I su- suppose, it, it, you know, arguably maybe it's a, a matter of time. I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think the, the flip side of thinking about that question is, and this is perhaps going a little bit off on a tangent, but in along the eastern coast of Australia, for example, because of the warming um, under climate, we're actually experiencing that coral and coral reef organisms are migrating south. So, for example, in Sydney Harbour, we're now seeing um, subtropical corals start to invade our more traditionally temperate waters. So, you know, you could argue that there's a bit of a bit of an escape happening, and and maybe this might reflect that further north conditions are. Are entering a phase that that is no more longer viable. But you know, arguably, as long as there's space for them to grow and and move into, maybe that's some some further hope. So mm. I can't think of good examples where entire areas have, have mm. died and and haven't been able to to recover to some capacity or at least enter some new state. Well, that's good. I read an interesting study and. It said records of visits to the Great Barrier Reef indicate that general decline in tourist visas has not yet occurred. Instead, there's been an increase in last chance tourism characterised by the motivation to see an iconic place or species before it's gone or permanently changed. That's that's kind of a depressing thought that people just seem to be accepting its loss and, you know, making sure that they get to see it before it's gone. I've, I've been working with the tourism um, industry now for a few years on the Great Barrier Reef through through our program, and you do occasionally end up talking to the tourists. And I would agree it's a bit of a morbid kind of view of, of motivation to visit the reef, but it is out there. And of course, once visitors do come to the reef, they realise just how misjudged you know that perhaps they, they might have been. And you know, you start to sort of feel a bit more mm. optimism when you visit the reef, whether it's well placed or not doesn't seem like the Australian government is contributing a great deal to in their efforts to saving it. I could be wrong, but that's how it seems from the outside. Yeah, it's interesting optics that I think is still debatable. But the government's response in terms of, you know, what are they doing? Have they Are they contributing to saving it? I think there's, there's quite a lot to unpack in that statement. And really, when we think about how they're investing into 
um, the future of the reef. The focus very much has been on trying to either augment or, or innovate management. And so we turned the clock back about two years ago. We had a half billion dollar investment into improving water quality, controlling crown of thorn starfish, which are a really voracious um, predator of corals that can can sort of break out into large numbers. But then also some investment into really sort of more out-the-box ideas of really think about aiding reef recovery through generating more resilient corals or new new ideas to reduce heat loadings onto to reefs. So the, the concern with this investment, I guess, has been that it's, or the argument I should say, has been that it's been put forward as a smokescreen for acting on on climate and, and emissions, and I think there's, there's there's obviously an ounce of truth in that for sure, uh, more than an ounce. And I think what we have to remember is, of course, so long as the government has great policy towards um, reducing emissions and moving to renewables, then we have hope for the reef. But at present, we're not seeing a lot of um, evidence in terms of promises being delivered. So we're not having the full commitment at present. But I think what I want to emphasize is that these investments into the sort of short-term management are, are absolutely critical because they do give us a means to ensure that we have reefs to work with whilst we solve climate change. And, and that's probably the, the biggest point here is, you know, the focus, of course, 100%, we're all in agreement, has to be on reducing emissions and, and removing climate change. But it's going to take, even if we switched everything off tomorrow, we're in a position where the reefs are going to still be facing threats. They're going to be warming. They're probably still going to experience periodic bleaching for the next decade or so. So whilst the system recovers, we have to be in a position to to manage that recovery and mm. ensure that the reefs of the future really are um, in the best possible sense. So I think when we when we think about is the Australian government contribute to, I suppose they're contributing to managing it, but mm. perhaps we could say that they're not yet contributing to saving it until we really see the delivery on uh, emissions reductions. I think we're all in agreement that un unless we hit, we're playing the long game here, that the, the short-term solutions really are there. Really, you know, it, it's, again, I sort of think back to the the argument of, of putting the patient on life support. Mm. You know, we're sort of, we're treating the patient, but we're not really investing into the cure. And the, the question is, how long can the patient hang on? So I think if we think of that analogy, we, we just then start to to be a little bit more pragmatic about where we should be resourcing properly. Mm. David, what is the opinion of, of tourist providers? Well, the, the, yeah, the tourist providers, they, they want to be empowered to do um, anything to help. I mean, it's, it's probably the best evidence I've had of the need for immediate action has been through the tourism industry where, you know, they have immense local knowledge. A lot of these operators have been, been family businesses for decades. So they have an incredible site knowledge of the specific reefs they work in. And they're seeing that these systems are really disappearing in real time or certainly changing in, in real time beyond a state that they've ever recognized before. And in the past, historically, operators have been allowed to conduct what we call stewardship activities at site and so sort of taking care of the site through anything from crown of thorns removal to really ensuring green operations you know making sure how public interact with reefs but what they weren't allowed to do is actually touch coral pick up coral and that was a real concern because of course as we were losing coral under climate change and seeing some of the degradation happen um, many of the operators were seeing fra natural fragments of coral broken off they couldn't do anything with it and so it was just viable material that was going to die so 
there had been a growing movement across the world in terms of what's called coral restoration and or coral gardening for really want of a better word and the idea is you can pick up these fragments um, you can either then propagate them in a nursery and plant whole corals or you can simply reattach these fragments back to the reef and and there's pretty good success rates in doing this and certainly the more we do it the more we learn but the point being is that the operators really wanted more um, capacity and more empowerment to be able to to undertake the more active role in stewarding the health of the reef in the short term climate change was being debated and solved of course from our point of view it's not really debatable but it, it certainly meant that there was a huge drive to do something proactive but also a huge actually workforce in terms of real talented skilled and knowledgeable community mm, power to the people well presumably it's not a long-term solution halting climate change is the only way we can do that but you're spearheading this program which you, you spoke uh, about you mentioned coral gardening mm-hmm. to keep the reef healthy in the interim can you tell us about that and how it actually works it, it seems so unlikely that you could plant coral and have it regrow <laughs> yeah it's it's coral's pretty amazing stuff and it it's solved a lot of problems in terms of being really successful in a pretty otherwise hostile environment it can reproduce both sexually, so like normal means, it produces eggs and sperm, fertilizes into the water, produces larvae, and settle. But the actually the success rate of those larvae, tiny, tiny sort of planktonic organisms um, growing into adults, is extremely low. You know, we we hear statistics of sort of one in ten to hundred thousand survive, but that's probably uh, on the low end. The other means which which they can reproduce is actually they can fragment the clonal organisms. So so, so long as enough of a piece of uh, material tissue breaks off it can actually grow indefinitely into another coral so as i mentioned to you before coral naturally fragments and it means if that if those fragments land in the right place and can reattach to the reef then you've actually solved one of the big problems of ensuring you retain biomass on the on the reef in terms of rebuilding over time so to, to sort of cut the, the story a little bit short is we uh, we were talking with operators on the reef through and through actually a different program and it was very clear that they had real intent to, to to adopt this sort of approach to start filling in gaps. And I mentioned the statistic where many reefs that had been impacted in the past, it was patchy. So sort of 30% of each reef was, was lost, but say 60, 70% was still in fantastic conditions. They really wanted to use the fantastic material available to help sort of rebuild the, the, the lost areas faster than nature could do itself through through producing larvae. So corals can only sexually produce their larvae once per year, but they can fragment year out. So they've got a real means to, to fast track that recovery approach. The big issue with this idea is where it's been tried in the past, and the reason it's still called coral gardening, is it's it's sort of been quite anecdotal in terms of almost sort of a hobbyist type approach to just see, you know, can we pick up coral and plant it? It was never really considered to be implemented what we would call at scale mm. as a much more, more sort of industrialized and cost-effective way of supporting management. So we set up a project called the Coral Nurture Program, and it was designed to um, put together the collective motivation and workforce of, of tourism to um, undertake coral propagation and planting and, and contribute to rebuilding reefs um, alongside our research. And really where we come into it is our group specializes in understanding how the environment, whether it's climate change or you know, local stresses, influence how corals grow. So that's really important because we can start to use all of that scientific knowledge that we've learned for the past couple of decades, thinking about climate change and other stresses, to understand where's the best place to plant and um, 
you know, and when and what species, et cetera, and really overcome some of the bottlenecks in the cost effectiveness of this process going forward. And as a result, we managed to transform these methods by probably about one to two orders of magnitude in terms of scale and cost effectiveness. And we've now implemented propagation activity across 27 sites on the Northern Great Barrier through six operator partners, and that's growing all the time. The operators themselves have planted nearly 70,000 corals, which is a phenomenal amount. And perhaps the, the most striking statistic we have from this process now is the very first fragments that the industry planted about three years, they had grown so quickly on the reef that they started sexually reproducing for the first time um, last year. And that's really the ultimate goal is is making this process redundant. You kind of want to plant enough coral that can Mm. survive, that can then grow to a size that can reproduce by itself without any intervention. So we we kind of feel as though we've got the first evidence for that. We've certainly reached scales of collective action that's certainly making a, a difference. And yeah, we're about to, to really launch the program more broadly into, into the Whit Sundays as well, which is the second large tourism hub for the Great Barrier Reef. So it, it really, again, just talks to the fact that it's, it's a process that can enable communities to be a lot more proactive in, in the short term future of their, their reefs. Mm. And the Whit Sundays, for our listeners who might not know it, was an area that was quite decimated a few years ago by a cyclone. So presumably, David, it lost quite a lot of its its coral reef in that time. Yeah, we got a real challenge on our hands there. I think the, the reason we, we originally started the program in Cairns, Port Douglas region in the far north Queensland was because that was the impact where we had the greatest bleaching um, in 2016, 2017, and really the, the, the greatest short-term loss. The Whit Sundays, as you said, it's a, it's a different kettle of fish where we've had cyclone activity that's pretty much scoured large areas and so the environmental context for reef recovery is very different for us but actually the tourism model is different so from an operations perspective in in uh, the far north all of the operators have their own set moorings and reefs they work at so it's, it's really easy to operationalize the process and manage and monitor but in the Whitsundays, the operators rove around between different sites. So it's it's a different type of process. So we're excited with the opportunity to see how, how the, the program will actually um, be adopted. There's definite hunger for it, but we've got a few, few sort of logistical challenges ahead of us. And because of the cyclone activity, as I said, the environmental context is very different. It's, it's a bit more sedimented. As I said, it's a lot more scoured. And so, you know, it, it may not be as effective as, as uh, it has been further north, but that's why we do the science is really work out where it's most fe- feasible to adopt these sorts of approaches. And actually, part of the science is also recognising when it's time to stop what you're doing and also walk away. Mm. You talk about propagating, and I mean, it sounds very much like the same process as, as growing a plant. Can you therefore mm-hmm. breed corals that are going to be able to withstand higher temperatures? The short term answer, sorry, the short answer to that is absolutely. There's, there's again various layers to this. There's really active science in this space, looking at cross breeding. So again, really adopting a lot of the ideas we have in plant agriculture. So you gave a great analogy there. You know, corals in a sense are part plant in the way they operate for comparative purposes, at least. So you know, they they can be uh, propagated through fragmentation or cuttings. They can also be crossbred with different um, varieties and there's as i said there's a lot of active um, research in that in that space through through yeah lots of scientists in australia that are undertaking this but the other thing to say about this is actually coral populations in nature are extremely heterogeneous and diverse 
We actually employ a, an approach called phenotyping as part of our research. And the idea behind this is that if you can kind of quickly survey a lot of your species of interest, you start to see very subtle differences in the way in which they perform. And again, agriculture does this similarly. So they may have a huge amount of bread crops and then they'll screen them to then identify the most drought tolerant and selectively breed those particular individuals um, further forward. So we do a similar idea where we're looking using our phenotyping tools mm -hmm. to identify corals that are more stress tolerant, certainly more heat tolerant. And then we ensure that we include some of those organisms, some of those um, varieties, if you like, in our outplanting. Mm. The one thing to say in, in respect to that is, of course, you can't put all your eggs in one basket. And yeah. I think we're starting to realize with a lot of the planting efforts going on worldwide, and on the Great Barrier Reef, ours is not the only example, and there's, there's lots happening worldwide, is you have to plant diversity. And that might come as a sort of strange statement to hear. It sounds pretty obvious. But I think there's a temptation to just sort of focus on, say, the most stress-tolerant mm. individuals. But actually, we don't know what sort of trade-offs that has come with, and perhaps the most heat-tolerant coral may be really suitable for dealing with other types of stressor. So we, we're really making sure that our phenotyping picks the greatest variation, as opposed to focusing just on the, um, the most stressor. David, you mentioned coral being found in Sydney Harbour. I also read some literature, and perhaps it was written by you, actually, about reefs being found in mangrove areas. I mean, those, that water is, is quite shallow and warm, isn't it? That's quite unusual. That's right. We, we got interested in this. This is going back to some, some other work. And actually, the very first campaign of doing this was where we met the tourism operators because we contracted one of the boats to undertake the work. It was in with National Geographic. And the... Uh, remit was really simple. We had observed corals inhabiting these really stressful mangrove lagoons in other locations in Indonesia, Seychelles, New Caledonia. These lagoons are extremely hot, extremely acidic, and really have very little oxygen for parts of the day. So they kind of mimic this multi-stress condition that we're predicting under climate change in the next, say, 100 years. So the fact that corals are able to persist into these systems is gives us a couple of ideas. The first is, well, if you give corals long enough to to adapt and sort of be selectively fed into these systems, then there's some element of, of adaptation perhaps. But the other important aspect of this is if we really understand the biology of the corals that are living or being able to populate these lagoons, it starts to tell us the, the real biology required to deal with multi-stress systems into the future. And, you know, are we really looking at the right place, for example, when we're trying to selectively breed corals based on certain properties? So, yeah, the mangrove work's been a really, really interesting. And we discovered the first mangrove coral populations. I, I can't remember what it was now, maybe 2017. And there was a few different islands we find them. But we're looking all the time and we hear reports all the time of, of really spectacular coral populations just surviving in these really crazy habitats. And, you know, the question is, these sorts of habitats, I think, have always been seen as a bit of a curiosity. It's sort of people have thought, well, it's really interesting corals have been seen in these systems, but, but the penny hadn't really dropped. But there were huge benefits in, in examining these. But you've got, to, you've got to have your wits about you going into these systems, because you can imagine, certainly on the Great Barrier Reef, but also elsewhere, 
working in these lagoons, pretty much everything in there wants to wants to kill you. There's crocodiles, there's sharks. Sharks are breeding in these systems. Uh, box jellyfish, cone shells. So it's uh, it's not for the faint-hearted, but the reward is, has been been phenomenal. We've we've obviously had some great exploration in discovering some of these systems. You can send all your interns in to do that job. <laughs> that I surround myself with PhD students if uh, <laughs> if you look carefully in all the photographs. <laughs> David, is it possible for tourists to dive and see these sites where the coral has been replanted? Absolutely, yes. So what I should have said about the replanting, the real innovation behind this was the industry operators developed a novel device called a coral clip. And it was this tiny little clip that you nail onto the reef. It takes about 15 seconds. Then you slot a coral fragment underneath it. It binds it onto the reef long enough to cement itself and regrow. The whole idea of this is that it becomes an invisible product within about two to three months. So over that time frame, that that little metal clip degrades, corrodes, but is also overgrown by the coral. So actually, you can't tell after two to three months what's been planted. So it means that we can plant quite often in the zones that tourists are snorkeling in. And many tourists just think that these are corals that have naturally recruited and grown into the system. But we have a little metal detector and we can swim across the reef and we can actually tell people that no those have been corals that have been replanted so it, it's like that was really the original intent was was really making sure that the aesthetics of the system weren't, weren't impacted do uh, what is the, the reaction from tourists when they hear that this is coral that's been replanted i mean it, it's just so positive i cannot i cannot think of a negative comment we've had really from from tourism i, I think the the fact that they're experiencing the reef through operations that really are having a positive um, role in terms of stewarding the reef and retaining reef health. I, I think it gives them great pride they've chosen to be with, with those operators to experience their day. And they get much more, as I said, out of the reef experience as much as a passive, go along, see the reef, these are the natural processes, but also the, the more social angles and those that are really dependent on, on the reef for for economies and livelihoods, how how do they interact with these natural resources and ensure that they're in the best possible condition for everyone else to enjoy? So, yeah, really, really positive. I, I honestly, I'm struggling to think of, of negative comments. I quite often say it's a bit of a midlife crisis for me as a scientist. You know, you sort of sit in your office and you ask clever questions, but it really wasn't until I started working with the operators you start to feel you had a bit of purpose and a bit of meaning. So it's really has been transformative um, and rewarding you were mentioning tourist operators doing quite a lot, collecting coral, etc. Can tourists themselves get involved in this or does it require some special uh, knowledge? That's, yeah, that's an evolving space, I would say. At present, tourists can't be directly involved and all our activity is under research permits because, of course, we're still learning what, what we're doing. It's not a commercial enterprise and deliberately the many of the operators don't want it to be a commercial enterprise. But simply by tourists participating and joining on operations that are conducting these activities, they're exposed to them and Mm. and really see how the propagation efforts are integrated seamlessly into the everyday tourism operation. It's sort of part of the experience now of how tourism is trying to become more sustainable by giving back, if you like, with, with increased stewardship. So at the moment, I would say tourism engagement is somewhat passive, but plenty of opportunity to experience. But we're, we're increasingly exploring opportunity for more active engagement and whether that might be helped with monitoring some of the success of what we do um, right the way through to planting is is obviously areas where other operators are interested in opening up new tourism experiences but at the moment that's uh, that's 
a work in progress. Mm. David, are there any other countries who were in a similar position to Australia who are doing something different or doing it well? I would say, I think every country that I can think of that has a reef is doing something, whatever it can. And I think that reflects, it, it sort of comes back to this this idea that we have a billion people around the world now that are really dependent on, on healthy, viable reefs. So everyone is doing something. The success of that is growing and changing all the time. Uh, everyone's trying different things. We're all starting to learn collectively. Networks are, are growing and solidifying that can share that knowledge and, and make sure that the resources we put into new and innovative ways to, to manage reefs, certainly in the short term, are actually having a meaningful effect. And I think that's an important point as well, is that we, we're sort of now entering a, a really interesting space for these aggressive ways of management um, of reefs and, and interventions where they're looking for more sustained financing, which is sort of opening up more commercialised ventures in terms of reefs, reef resources and reef management. And it's going to be a really interesting space to see how that really avoid stepping into more of an exploitation sense. So it's a really interesting time for us, I think, in that space and and research and and action. And I would say that just, just do something. I think we all want to feel empowered. We all want to feel as though we're actually participating. And I think just ensure that any any action you have is a meaningful one. And I can guarantee that anyone in my team or, or the program that's planted a single coral has felt empowered. And it's it's one more coral on the reef than, than was there yesterday. What about the impact of over-tourism on the reef? I remember many many years ago being in mexico and i was snorkeling in one of those lagoons that are almost cut off from the the ocean and one of the things that we were made to do was to shower and not have any sunscreen on us before we were allowed to to go into this lagoon Mm -hmm. however in my time snorkeling the great barrier reef i don't remember ever being asked not to wear sunscreen for example is this an issue and what are some of the other things that tourists can do to protect the reef Sun, yeah, sunscreen is, uh, is, is a bit of a hot, hotly debated topic. I think the scientific evidence for sunscreen impacting coral health is, is very much mixed. There's not a lot of strong, strong evidence for it. But of course, if you have enough of any kind of a compound, it certainly has an impact. So I think the messaging when there are, there are tourism activities in confined areas of the reef and lagoons, I think anything you can do to potentially mitigate an impact is a must. So I, you know, even though the scientific evidence is perhaps thin, I would definitely say that the action and the, the sort of social connotations of it are really Im- important to encourage. I think any any small action, if it's done um, collectively and at scale, can have an impact. Having said that, I think what we cannot lose sight of is that that is the only thing we do. So I think so long as those tourism operations are also really trying to promote the real solutions at the same time, then of course they're implementing this twofold long-term and um, short-term approach. The sorts of other things, I mean, many operators now carry the sort of more coral-friendly sunscreen on their boats. And again, sometimes that's why they don't even mention about wearing sunscreen is not a problem because Mm. they they quite often provide the right type of sunscreen. And actually a lot of people just prefer to cover up because certainly snorkeling at certain times of the year on the Great Barrier Reef, it's stinger season, the last thing you really want to do is be exposed anyway. So again, covering up is actually a much better alternative in a sense. Lots of other things, of course, that tourists can do and uh, certainly keep visiting the reef is the most important thing supporting the operations and certainly those that are um, really 
giving back is important. And the, the best operations as well will really ensure that they, those tourism impacts are extremely low. And, and that ranges anything from interacting and touching with coral and, and other organisms to ensuring that you don't leave anything else on the reef, such as litter. So, you know, plastic pollution is another big issue that, that again, everyone can do a little bit towards and, and help, but not lose sight of the bigger goals that we have to solve climate change. David, is there any possibility that in the future we're going to have to restrict the number of tourists visiting the reef? I, I don't think so. That's a really interesting thought, actually, is, is you know, restrict, should we restrict tourism? I, I don't think so. But the, again, you, you, you mentioned actually rightly what, what can we do aside from really pressing the button hard on our emissions and certainly government action towards ensuring we solve climate change yesterday. I think the other movement we've got to be mindful of is that that's actually quite inherently coupled to tourism activity. And we do, for example, modes of transport to ensure that they can switch into more renewable type energy. So again, that the actual form of tourism itself lowers its its carbon footprint so that you can have numbers of, of tourism tourists on the reef in unlimited numbers in that in that respect. I don't think we know where the saturation level is so far at reef sites. I could be wrong, but I certainly haven't seen anything to that to that effect but in terms of what what else can t- you know tourists it's, it's just don't give up on the reef and and i think try and cut through the messaging when you hear statements such as you know reefs are dead is really obviously look at the facts and try and fact check that as hard as you can and certainly look for look for wider views on it and hopefully today's conversation has been a great chance to hear a little bit of diversity on that sort of opinion but yeah don't give up on the reef visit the reef support it ensure that everyone out there that visits the reef understands the impacts and how you really minimize any impact of visiting the reef is, is probably the most critical thing you do just like you would with any other ecosystem yeah you wouldn't go to a rainforest and expect to leave a, a, a large visitation footprint behind so yeah be proactive I would say. David, thank you so much for joining me today. I have learnt so much and you've also filled me with a little bit of hope that our reef will continue to, to grow and thrive and not all, all is not lost. Absolutely. And thank you for the opportunity to talk about what we're doing. And, I, I, you know, that, that is a, an important part of what we do is give a little bit of hope. And so long as it's not misguided hope, and I quite often describe myself as a, you know, pr- I have pragmatic optimism. You know, I think we, as long as we're realistic with what we're trying to do and achieve, then um, there really is some hope out there. And listeners, if you'd like to know more, head over to the website www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com where I'll also post some of the photos of the work that David's doing with the replanting of the coral. Thanks, as always, for listening. And wherever you are in the world, bon voyage and bon appétit.
You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple, Spotify or Google Podcasts and subscribe, rate and leave a review.